The passage is from Proverbs 7, 1 through 27. My son, keep my words and treasure my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers, write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call insight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. For at the window of my house, I have looked out through my lattice and I have seen among the simple. I perceived among the youths a young man lacking sense. Passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight and the evening at the time of night and darkness. And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, woolly of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him. And with bold face, she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices and today I have paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her past, for many a victim as she lay low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death." Years ago, when I lived in Charlotte, North Carolina, I coached high school football while I was going to seminary part-time and while I was uh, directing a youth outreach ministry. And coaching football was a great way to meet students, um, even to minister to coaches for that matter. And I remember every week we would uh, have a film session where we would watch film on the opponent that we were going to play that following Friday. And every week we would meet, there was, a, um, there was a restaurant in town in Charlotte called Shomar's. Shomar's would provide dinner plates for all the coaches while we watched film session for a couple of hours. Uh, flounder, fried flounder plate, full pile of fries, full thing of coleslaw, and a big sweet tea. And so I, I loved coaching and I loved film sessions, but I was a single man. And so probably more than anything, I loved eating fried flounder plates as we sat there and as we strategized about the team that we were going to be playing. But when we did that, as we sat there for a couple of hours, watching usually the, the, the previous Friday game of this opponent we were going to play, there was always a tension among the coaches. And that was, how, how much do we, do we watch what this team's defensive schemes are so that we can change our offensive game plan and add plays and formations and do all that? Or how much do we just run our bread and butter plays, what we know how to do, just run our offense, it doesn't matter what they do. And there was always that tension, you know, and coaches would talk about, we're getting too cute, we're changing plays, and we're trying, just do what we know to do. When we talk about sin, I think there's a similar tension. And the tension is, how much do we focus on the enemy? How much do we focus on the enemy's tactics? 
and on sin's tactics? Or how much do we just focus on our Savior, Jesus Christ, right, who has defeated the enemy and defeated sin? Now, the vast majority of the Bible talks about the story, the rescue story of Jesus Christ who came to defeat sin, defeat the enemy, defeat Satan. And so we lift our eyes to Christ, and yet throughout the scriptures, we do see parts of it that speak uh, very specifically to how sin works and how the enemy works, starting with the, the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3 with how the serpent comes in. Proverbs 7 right here describes the seduction of sin. James chapter 1 talks about how sin lures and entices. And so while we keep our focus on the Christ and the one who has defeated sin, there are these passages that are a reminder to us that sin is real and that sin is dangerous and that sin is seductive. And so we look at Proverbs 7 and we see that loud and clear. Now, let me make a point here. Proverbs 7 is talking about the adulterous woman and about adultery. But it's the, it's the end of three chapters from five, chapter five to chapter seven about broader sin, not just sexual immorality. So you've got in the beginning of chapter six, it talks about financial and legal entanglements. Uh, in, the, in the middle of chapter six, you've got uh, a self-indulgent lifestyle and other sins. And so by the time we get to chapter seven, we see that this, this caution against the adulterous, promiscuous woman is really a metaphor for the, 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 the way that sin can entrap us and entangle us, right? So chapter seven is a metaphor about sin and how it entraps us and it entangles us and certainly it speaks into adultery and sexual immorality. So with that, we ask the question, how does sin work? How does it work? And we're going to look at three aspects of how sin works. The target of sin, the tactics of sin, and then the trajectory of sin. So let's start with the target of sin. We get the picture in verse 6 of a father who is he's sitting in his house and he's looking out the window. And he's seeing these things play out on the street. And then in verse 7, he says... I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense. Now, what does this mean? Who is the simple? It's a word that appears numerous times in Proverbs. And it means the gullible, those that are easily misled, those that are easily persuaded. Now, what's important to note here is it's not talking about the evil, the wicked, the immoral. In other words, this isn't describing a person who with great intentionality and purpose has decided to walk away from God and pursue sin and folly. And this is why it's important for us to hear that this is talking about a vulnerable person. And to that, we are all vulnerable. This speaks to you and me that we're all vulnerable to sin, in, in many ways unaware of the dangers of sin that surround us. 
That's what verses eight and nine to get to when it describes this young man who, who makes his way onto the street near where she lives and he does it in the darkness in the twilight. It's this young man who lacks sense, who's gullible, who's vulnerable, who doesn't realize the danger that's lurking around him. He doesn't see his vulnerability. And so it begs the question to us, do we understand how vulnerable we all are? You know, in all the people that I have counseled over the years, even just had conversation with, who have found themselves uh, fallen into a grievous sin that has horrible consequences and they're broken over it. I have yet to hear one of those people say, I knew it was coming. Wasn't a surprise. No, what I hear them say is, how did I do that? How did I get into that? They say, how did I become the person that I never thought I would become? Or they say, how did I commit that sin that I, I never thought I was capable of committing? They're surprised, caught off guard by how vulnerable they were and how dangerous sin was around them. My wife and I, early in our marriage, and, and I share this here and there at pre, premarital counseling sessions, my wife and I looked at each other and confessed that we are capable of committing adultery. don't plan on it, <laughs> don't want to, but we looked at each other and said, we, we are capable. And that's, that's actually a healthy place to be when we can say, I am capable of the worst. I am capable of committing the worst of sins because I know I'm vulnerable and I know I'm weak and I know I'm broken. So do you understand that you're a target of sin, that you're vulnerable? And that, if you understand that, leads into the second point, which is the tactics of sin, right? That when you're vulnerable, how it can pursue you and seduce you and lure you. So how does sin work? Second point, the tactics of it. You know, we often think of sin as a, as a rule to break or a command to disobey. It's almost like it, it, it's passive. It's, it's this rule or command, and we we decide whether we're gonna engage it or not, right? We're gonna decide whether we resist sin X, whatever it is. But what Proverbs chapter seven, 10 to 20 explain is something very different. It doesn't paint sin as passive, as if it's just sitting there and we decide whether to engage. No, it paints sin as the aggressor. It paints sin as very active, in its pursuit. And behind sin, it's not just a, a, a command, behind sin is a person. And it gets summed up well in verse 21, right? With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. We see here there's striking parallels between the seduction of sin in Proverbs 7 and the seduction of the serpent in Genesis chapter 3. Lots of parallels. And so what are the tactics? First, you see that sin calls. Look at verses 11 to 12. It says she is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. What is this saying? It says that sin is loud. It's the loudest voice on the street. It's the loudest voice on the street. You don't have to, to bend over and kind of incline your ear and try to hear. It's loud. Think about it. 
how do you have to listen carefully or concentrate really hard right, to, to, to hear or to find sexual morality? No. Do you have to listen really, really carefully to find greed or materialism? Do you have to listen really carefully and be very intent to find the American dream? Of course not. They're right there. They're front and center, right? Sin is loud. It's the loudest voice on the street. But it takes diligence and dependence to hear the voice of God, right? Our, our default setting coming out of the womb is that our hearts are tuned to the voice of sin. If you've had children, you, you get that immediately. You don't have to, to tune your child's heart to disobedience, right? That's loud and clear. They, they know how to disobey. Why? Because sin is the loudest voice. They're born broken, right? They're born flawed. Their hearts have to be tuned, right, to hear God's voice, tuned to the word of God, right? So sin is, sin is loud. Second tactic of sin it pursues. Verse 13, she seizes him. I mean, that's just active language. She seizes him uh, and kisses him. Right? That sin is aggressive. It pursues. I mean, uh, think about the garden in Genesis 3, right? Satan didn't just sit back. The serpent didn't just sit back and wait for Eve to engage. No, what did, what did the serpent do? The serpent engaged Eve. Now, the serpent was very wily and seductive. But the serpent was the aggressor towards Eve. And that's how sin works. 1 Peter 5, 8, be watchful, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Sin is not passive and therefore it can't be fought with passivity. Right? Sin's not passive and therefore it can't be fought with passivity. Third, sin deceives. Look at verse 14. I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. Now, what's the woman saying here? She's saying, I'm religious. I'm really not that bad. I'm religious. I'm not that bad. Don't worry about it. Right? That's, that's what sin does. Sin justifies itself. Sin will, will, will convince you it's not really that bad. That it's really not that bad. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, 14. Right? Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. I love the way that uh, J.C. Ryle puts this in his book, Holiness. He says it this way. We are too apt to forget that temptation to sin will rarely present itself to us in its true colors saying, I am your deadly enemy and I want to ruin you forever in hell. Oh no. Sin comes to us like Judas with a kiss, like Joab with outstretched hand and flattering words. The forbidden fruit seemed good and desirable to Eve, yet it cast her out of Eden. Walking idly on his palace roof seemed harmless enough to David, yet it ended in adultery and murder. Sin rarely seems like sin at first beginnings. It's deceptive. Fourth, sin flatters. Look at verse 15. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. 
right? To seek you eagerly, it's actually an idiom that, that describes or suggests uh, that this young man's handsome features are what singled him out for this woman. In other words, she's saying, you're handsome. I actually love how uh, Bruce Waltke, he's a commentator in Proverbs, and he writes this. She climactically and cunningly exalts, I found you, just you, you good-looking hunk of a man. That's basically the paraphrase of what's happening there. Right? It's what every man wants to hear. Right? You're a stud. You're a stud. Right? And that's what happens. Right? Sin flatters. Right? And sin flatters, and, and it flatters and plays off of our need to be deeply loved and deeply known. We have a need to be known. We have a need to be loved. We have a need to be desired, and sin plays off that. I'll give you a couple examples. This explains, or this is the reason why a young woman would give her body to a man that she maybe doesn't even know that well. Because here's what happens. The, the, the sexual immorality, the sin of sexual immorality, calls out in a loud voice to a young woman, if you will sleep with this man, you will be wanted and desired and you'll feel wanted and desired like you've never known. Or it explains the reason why a, a young man, a young woman will basically leave his family and his marriage for a career, right? The, the sin, the idolatry of careerism calls out in a loud voice and it says this, if you will give me your life, if you'll give me your time and your energy and, and forsake your family, you will be known and respected like never before. The, the applause of your company will be deafening. It will be a roar. You see, sin flatters and it plays off our need to be deeply known, deeply desired, deeply wanted. And the only love that can ultimately satisfy that is the love of Jesus Christ but sin plays off of it. Fifth, sin promises satisfaction. Look at verse 16. I've spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. Colored linens from Egypt, that was a sign of wealth. Verse 17, I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Those three spices were found, were found in the royal treasuries. Again, wealth, but they were also aphrodisiacs, which leads to verse 18. Let us delight ourselves with love. Here you see it, wealth and pleasure just laid out before this young man. That's what sin does. Satisfaction guaranteed. It promises satisfaction. It says, look, I'm gonna put it before you and if, and if you will just indulge in this, you will feel wanted and known and respected and everything. It will satisfy your deepest longings. Satisfaction guaranteed. Now, this leads to the last point of how sin works. It promises satisfaction, but it hides the consequences, right? Look at verse 19. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. No one will know. You won't get caught. There will be no consequences. You see, sin, it presents the bait and it hides the hook. It presents the bait and it hides the hook. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he says it this way. At the moment of temptation, Satan doesn't fill us with hatred for God. 
but rather forgetfulness of God. You think about in the, in the Garden of Eden, what did the serpent finally say to Eve? You know, there's this, this long luring and seduction, but what was his final statement to Eve about eating the fruit from the tree? Right? Satan said to her, you surely will not die. Here it is, tasty, but there's no hook. There's no consequence. You won't get caught. Right? That's what sin does. It hides the consequences. Now, this whole process of seduction that we just went through from verses 10 through 20 of the, of the, of the calling, the pursuing, the deceiving, the promising satisfaction, the hiding the consequences, it's illustrated, I think, beautifully by Russell Moore in his book, Tempted and Tried. He was listening to a, an NPR segment uh, on how they were... Um, learning to kill cows gently. Let me explain this for a second. There was a, a scientist on NPR that was interviewed that was doing research, trying to figure out how do you kill cows gently? Now, why was he doing that? Because they learned in the slaughterhouses that when a, when a cow um, gets stressed, that it releases hormones that lowers the quality of the meat. And so this scientist, Temple Grandin, was, was basically did a project to figure out how do, you, how do you keep a cow from getting stressed as he is being paraded to his death? And so he basically came up with uh, the, the thesis that if you keep the cow's life uh, as normal as possible, um, as, as natural as can be, that it will not get stressed and therefore you'll have higher quality meat right, that gets butchered. Listen to, listen to the techniques that he proposed for gently killing cows. Listen to this. Workers shouldn't yell at the cows, Grandin said. And they should never use cattle prods because they are counterproductive and unneeded. If you just keep the cows contented and comfortable, they'll go wherever they're led. Don't surprise them, don't unnerve them, and above all, don't hurt them, well, at least until you slit their throats at the end. Along the way, Grandin devised a new technology that has revolutionized the ways of the big slaughter operations. In this system, the cows aren't prodded off the truck but are led in silence onto a ramp. They go through a squeeze chute, a gentle pressure device that mimics a mother's nuzzling touch. The cattle continue down the ramp onto a smoothly curving path. There are no sudden turns. The cows experience the sensation of going home, the same kind of way they've traveled many times before. As they mosey along the path, they don't even notice when their hooves are no longer touching the ground. A conveyor belt slightly lifts them gently upward, and then a blunt instrument levels a surgical strike right between the eyes. Now more goes on to explain the seduction of sin and parallel it. Listen to what he says. Forces are afoot right now, negotiating how to get you fat enough for consumption and how to get you calmly and without struggle to the cosmic slaughterhouse floor. The easiest life for you will be one in which you don't question these things, a life in which you simply do what seems natural the ease of it all will seem to further conf confirmation that this is the way things ought to be. 
You might feel as though your life situation is like progressing up a stairway so perfect, it's as though it was designed just for you. And it is. In many ways, the more tranquil you feel, the more endangered you are. Now, listen, I'm not describing a life of gospel rest if you're resting in Christ and there is tranquility of trusting the gospel, that you should be worried. Now, what he's describing there is the, the simple person, the gullible, the, the, the vulnerable that is just cruising along in life, right? And everything is just going well and that sin works that way. It's subtle and it's seductive. Now, that leads us to our final point. What's the trajectory of sin? So there's two paths that are laid out here in Proverbs 7. There's the path to death and the path to life. Now, the path to death is, is front and center, and it's pretty graphic in verse 22. All at once, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an ear arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. So at the end of the, the seduction of this adulterous woman, the seduction of sin, the warning is laid out that if you follow this, this woman, if you follow sin, that ultimately the trajectory point of it is a banquet in the grave. Now, the audience that's listening to this, just put yourselves in their seat as this is being read. The audience, they understand what it looks like for an ox, an ox to get slaughtered right? The, the, the neck is slit and the animal just bleeds out. And I would imagine that the people that are hearing this at this point, and remember it's young sons, young men, they're scared to death. I, I would be. <laughs> you know, the, the message is if you follow her, if you follow her, you're going to be like an ox, ox going to the slaughter. And they're scared to death. And you say, well, there it is. The way from the path to death to the path to life is fear of consequences, Right? If, if they're scared enough, they'll quit following sin and its seduction and they'll go to the path of life. And that's not true. Fear of consequences, it, it may keep you from sin for a week, maybe a couple weeks, maybe a couple of months, but fear of consequences will never put you on the path to life. And you say, well, what will? Well, verse 24 the father says, O sons, be attentive to the words of my mouth. He's just describing there what he started the chapter with in, in verse one. Right? Verse one is, my son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. And you say, okay, great. Fear of consequences won't move me to the path of life, but the commandments will. Right? Just give me the commandment. Don't do this and do this. And I'll be good to go. No, that's not sufficient. Information's not enough. You can have the command right in front of you. You should do this and not that. You can have that knowledge of the commandment and still fall prey to the seduction of sin. And you say, well, if fear of consequences won't move me to the path of life and just the simple information of the commandment won't move me to the path of life, what will? Look at verse four. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call insight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. 
You see here, it's, it's not just information. It's an affectionate relationship with wisdom that will put you on the path to life. You say, that sounds weird. How can you have an affectionate relationship with a principal? <laughs> well, if you've been listening so far in this series, wisdom is not just principles. Wisdom is a person. Matthew eleven nineteen says that Jesus Christ is wisdom personified. That Jesus Christ as wisdom personified came and lived in the streets with folly and sin. That Jesus Christ lived in the streets where sin was seductive. We see it in Matthew chapter four. Remember when Jesus gets tempted three times by Satan in an attempt to seduce Jesus. And what does he do? He resists it. Every time that Jesus Christ perfectly resisted this seduction that is described in Proverbs 7. And he did it for you. That he was lured and seduced and he resisted it perfectly, unlike Adam and Eve in the garden. Jesus lived a perfect life. He was sinless. And yet right before his death or at his death on the cross, he took your sins upon himself and he became the ox that went to the slaughter. And he became the stag whose liver was pierced. And he became the, the bird that was caught in a snare. And he was the one whose life was lost. It cost him his life that Jesus Christ took on all of your failings and all of your being seduced by sin and he put it on himself and he paid the penalty. He walked the path to death so that you could walk the path to life. And so you ask the question, how do you keep from sin? How do you keep from the seduction of sin? You bind yourself to Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is the one who can and will rescue you. What I want you to see here is that information alone is not enough. That knowledge alone is not enough. Knowledge is information, wisdom is affection. And what this is calling for is affection for wisdom, affection for the person of Jesus Christ, effectively binding your heart to his, the affections of your heart longing for him and he will rescue you. And guess what? When you fall prey to the seduction of sin, which you will, in this life before glory, you will. When you fall prey to the seduction, Jesus Christ is the one that rescues you every time and picks you up and puts you back on the path to life over and over and over. That he is the path to life. Let me close with a, a pretty pointed piece of application here. This is a passage of scripture. Proverbs 7, in fact, not just Proverbs 7, but Proverbs 5 through 7 that we're probably not racing to read to our children. Uh, it's graphic, it's blunt about adultery, about lust, about sexual morality, about the role and design of sex in marriage. In fact, if you read part of chapter five uh, and just read the chapter, you'll find the verse, it, it, it may even cause you to blush. You say, I don't know. Let's, I don't want to read this to my children. Understand, these three chapters were read by Jewish fathers to their young sons. There's an, an implicit call here, right, that parents are, 
are talking to their children about sex and God's design for it. We live in a sex-crazed culture. I don't have to convince you of that. We live in a sexually confused culture. I don't have to convince you of that. Your children know more than you think they know. Your children are hearing more than you think they're hearing. And the call here, just as Jewish fathers would read this to their young sons, is to talk to your children about sexuality and not let the world hijack it. Because the world has hijacked it. And if the world gets hold of your child and speaks for the first time about sexuality to them, it will be perverted and gross and turned upside down. And so you say, well, what, what age should I do this? What age should I speak to my child about this? I won't give you a specific age, but I will say this, that if your child is in middle elementary school and you haven't spoken to them about this, you need to do it. And you need to do it in a gospel-centered way that doesn't scare them, doesn't scare them into obedience, but presents to them Jesus Christ, his design for it, and how he has paid for their disobedience, that he has gone to the cross for their disobedience, and he will forgive them for their disobedience in this area, but that Jesus Christ is calling them and impress on their little hearts their need to depend on Jesus and go to Jesus in this area. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, that it is true, that it's accurate, uh, that it is honest, that it is blunt, that it describes life on the street. It describes the reality of sin, the danger of it, the seduction of it. And yet, Father, we're so grateful that your word also describes the one who has conquered it. Jesus, thank you for resisting sin. Thank you for your perfect life and your perfect death, your obedience for us and your death for us, that we would have hope, that we would have hope in this world to be able to resist and keep from sin. And Jesus, we confess our dependence on you. And I pray for those here this morning, maybe that are maybe because of this morning are recognizing the danger that they're in, that the seduction of sin has gotten the best of them and they, they are seeing the tactics and they find themselves in a very dangerous situation. I pray that Jesus, they would turn to you and that you would deliver them, that you would strengthen them, that you would rescue them and that you would put them in community with other people where they could find strength in the communion of the saints. And Father, as we close in worship this morning, would you help us to sing of our dependence on you and on your son Jesus, that we need you and long for you and want to see our deepest satisfaction and the deepest needs of our heart met in you. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.